Father, we are thankful for all the good gifts that you give to us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. And we are mindful of the presentation that we've heard tonight. We are aware that, those, that there are those among us who are, as parents, as families, dealing with some real challenges that, um, that we don't count on when we think of our lives and our futures and having children. And we are grateful that we are in a church that is aware of that segment of people that deal with children that are struggling with different issues in their health and in their mental capabilities. Now, there's just no getting around it. That's an extra burden. That's a heavy burden that we know nothing about if we're not in that situation. And we would take a minute and pray for those parents. Uh, there may even be guys here tonight, and they have children that, uh, that are dealing with Down syndrome or autism or some kind of physical handicap. We pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would encourage them. We pray that you would give them great wisdom, great wisdom. In, in raising these children, in, in knowing the balance, in knowing what to say, what not to say, the, the financial moves that need to be made. That is, uh, that is a cross that they bear. It is a cross, but it's also a great delight. It's a great privilege. But it's something that makes them very, very dependent on you. We all have areas in our lives where we are acutely aware of our need of you that if you don't come through for us, we won't make it. And that really brings us to our study tonight of, of the fact that this Christian life is a life that's lived by faith. So as we open the scriptures tonight, for each of us in our particular areas where we are so needy and so aware of our need and so dependent, and at times where we get even despondent, wondering if we'll make it another day, Encourage our hearts tonight. Remind us of the truth. Put courage into us. We all get down. It's a battle. We all get, uh, at times, we just, we get, we get fatigued. We just flat out get fatigued. So speak to each of our hearts. Energize us. Give us a B12 shot right where we need it tonight, we pray, by the power of your word. And we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you know where we're going, Ephesians chapter 6. We've been there for a while. We're making ground. We're covering some territory here in Ephesians 6. We'll start with verse 10. We're, we're getting to the armor, piece by piece. Finally, then, he says, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, 
Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Here's the belt of truth. The belt of truth was central. In the Christian life, truth is central. Not feelings, but truth. We, we don't live the Christian life based on how we feel. We live the Christian life based on what is true. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as we saw a couple weeks ago. The breastplate of righteousness covers the vital organs. That breastplate is an important piece. And the enemy's coming after us because, because we are fallen sinners. And he will come and attack us in our hearts. And what do we have to do? We have to put on the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you've got to have the right boots. You've got to have those hobnail boots that the Roman soldiers wore with the cleats in them so that you can stand firm. Three times it says stand firm. If you lose your feet in hand-to-hand combat, you're in trouble and you're vulnerable. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And as we said last week, if you're, not, if you're not sure you have peace with God, how in the world can you do battle with Satan when in your heart you're doing battle with God? So you have to be assured of the faith uh, in Christ that brings peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. The wrath that should have been put on us because we're sinners, because we fall short, the anger of God, and God has anger, or gay, he has wrath. But that doesn't come on us, that went on Jesus. So Jesus died in our place. Boy, there's a lot of nonsense out there in Christianity. In recent years, this uh, doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died in my place, one writer called it divine child abuse. That, that God would abuse his own son. And, as though, and he indicted God the Father for doing that. That's, that's, that's the greatest news in all the world. Jesus took my punishment for me. So, you know what that means? It means God, God is not mad at me. God's not angry with me. The wrath that was due me was put on Christ. And now I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 16... In addition to all, and here we go, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's where we camp tonight. Now, this should be familiar if you've ever seen a movie in your life about a Roman army coming to take a city that's under siege. You can picture this, can't you? In addition to all of this, the different pieces of armor, you've got to take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So let's talk about the shield. We, we mentioned last week that Paul is, uh, probably has in his mind a, a, a Roman soldier and the different pieces of armor that the Roman soldier has. There were two shields that Roman soldiers would have. One was a small oval shield that they would use in hand-to-hand combat that would be strapped to the wrist that they could easily slide down and grab. And it would enable them to have, it was about maybe two feet in diameter. It would enable them to have protection in hand-to-hand combat. But there was another kind of shield, which is in mind here, and this is um, a shield much larger, about two and a half feet wide, anywhere from four to four and a half feet long. This is a major league shield, made out of wood, uh, tanned leather, um, perhaps some metal placed in there. It, it, is, it is a big time shield, and it is a shield that is absolutely necessary how many times have you seen in a, in a movie 
you've seen a, a contingent of soldiers coming, and there's a battle being about to be waged, and they're going to take a walled city, and the guys in the walled city know that they're coming. So the guys in the walled city, when they, get, when they see that oncoming group of soldiers marching in close rank, how many times have you seen this? They got their bows, they got their arrows, and they take those arrows and they dip them in the pitch and they light them. And when those guys, that marching army, start getting close enough where they're in range, on order, they just, and they shoot those flaming arrows. What does the army do? Well, they're not stupid. They know what they're going to do. So what they do is they pull out the long shield, two and a half feet wide, four feet, four and a half feet long. It's like a small door. And what they do is, on order, when the arrows have been fired, they drop to one knee. And these shields are, they get in such tight formation that the shields pretty much are interlocking. They get down to one knee, they hold up the shield, and sometimes, depending on how many men are there, you'll have uh, the ranks of soldiers, a quarter of a mile, half a mile, a mile, and they've all got the shields, and there's not one gap or crevice in between a soldier. And what happens is those flaming arrows are shot, and they land, and wherever they go, they hit a shield. They hit a shield. They hit a shield. And those shields extinguish the flame, put out the flame, that's the picture. Uh, it's called uh, in Ephesians 6, 15, uh, 16, rather, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we're in battle. Just know this, that the longer you walk with Christ, um, the longer you are a Christian and the longer you live, the harder and more difficult the battle will become. The battle doesn't get less, the battle gets more intense. The battle is not receding, the battle is increasing, and the battle continues to get red hot. The battle is going to get worse and worse. Now once again, my ministry is one of encouragement. <laughs> but is this not your experience? Absolutely. The Christian life is a hard life. Why is that? Because we're in battle. In the world, Jesus said, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have trouble. Why? Because you're in war. You're in battle. Uh, quote this all the time, Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. That's why you've got many. And it's going to get more difficult, and it's going to get worse. We, we, we are living in a culture right now that is not real open or positive or embracing to biblical Christianity. If you want to be embraced, you better go find something else to hold on to. You better get some other philosophy or some other religion, because biblical Christianity is on the outs right now. And that's not going to be improving anytime soon. If you love Christ, they're going to hate you. They hate the Word of God. They hate the Gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way, and the world hates that. Oh, there are many ways. There's one way. There's one way. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name given to men unto heaven by which men may be saved except the name of Jesus. Christianity is exclusive. Christianity is narrow. 
Broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to righteousness, and few are those who find it. That's not real popular. They hate it. But it's the gospel, and we proclaim it. And as we proclaim it, more and more, it used to be in this country, there was more of a consensus that people were behind that, and even if they weren't Christians, they had a propensity towards it, they welcomed it, they had a belief in a Judeo-Christian background. At one time, that's where we were culturally, but no more. Those days are gone. Those days are over. So the battle is raging. It's getting more and more intense. If you expect things to get easier and easier, you're going to have a hard time. It's going to get worse and worse. And once again, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. <laughs> but, but don't we need the facts? Absolutely. So, so don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you, Peter says. It's not strange. It's normal. It's usual. It's a Christian life. It's a hard life. But there's a life that's more difficult than the Christian life, and that's the life without Christ. The way of the transgressor is hard. We are not in this battle by ourselves, but we are, we are in a battle. Years ago, there was a best-selling book by a uh, psychiatrist named Scott Peck. Not a Christian, um, just wrote a book. And basically, he wrote a book called The Road Less Travel. I've never read the book. I know many people who have. And they told me what it was about. Basically, uh, Scott Peck wrote a book, and this book started selling like hotcakes in the 70s and 80s, and Scott Peck recently passed away. But this was a monster book, The Road Less Traveled. And basically what the book was about, he would talk about in his counseling practice, he would have uh, people come to him all the time, mostly baby boomers. Are you a baby boomer? If you're a baby boomer, you were born in the most affluent uh, and pain-free period maybe in history if you're a baby boomer uh, your, your folks after World War II got married had you and then boom things took off you heard of the rise and fall of great nations we were rising British Empire was sun was setting we're raising up used to be the pound was the default currency. Ah, then it became the dollar. And then we're just, man, I mean, we're, we're rolling. We got the GI Bill, you know. Nobody been to college in your family. Your dad could go to college, you know. We got defense industry. We got all this. I mean, we are cooking. We are rolling. You got 56, 57 Chevys that were just unbelievable. Remember those little classic cars? Remember my Uncle Joe got that 57 Chevy. I'd never seen anything like that. Still haven't seen anything like it. Gosh. Life was good. And if you were a baby boomer, you were born during that time. And life was so good. Here's what Peck said in his book, The Road Less Travel. Uh, you get into the 60s, you get into the 70s, and he's got all these people coming in for counseling. Why are they coming in for counseling? They're coming in for counseling because they're disappointed by life. Well, why are you disappointed by life? Well, my marriage is hard. I'm having a hard time in my career. I'm having a hard time in life. I'm having a hard time. Why are you having a hard time? Well, because I thought it was going to be this and this. Basically, basically, they thought it was going to be easy. You know why they thought it was going to be easy? Because their whole life had been easy. And in this book, 
Peck, who led, later embraced more Christian principles, Peck wrote this book uh, from a thoroughly secular standpoint, The Road Less Traveled. You know, what his, you know what his answer was to these people? Just change your expectation. See, if you're depressed, all you have to do, just change your You think life's going to be easy, life's going to be hard. And if you just make that one change, you will do better in life. That was it. That's why I didn't read the whole book. <laughs> See, if you think and expect life to be easy like it was in the 50s when you were growing up and it's, you know, this and this and this and everything. Disneyland started. And remember when they built Disneyland? Oh, my gosh. It didn't get any better than that. And then they built Disney World. It doesn't get better than this. And then if you went to Disneyland, you go right down the street to Knott's Berry Farm. And they kept expanding that. And then they started this thing called SeaWorld. I, I mean, how, do you, how do you get better than this stuff? And then they started Six Flags. And it just was one big amusement park in the 50s and 60s. Oh, by the way, when you raise kids like that, and they got all this stuff, they're going to rebel and get angry like happened in the late 60s. Because, see, that's not enough. Well, you, we, I gave you things I never, I never had. Yeah, and you gave it to me, you know what, it's not fulfilling me, and so what do they do? They rebelled. Isn't that interesting? So, if you were a baby boomer, you uh, lived in a very, very prosperous time. Now, if you're a Christian, God shoots straights with us right out of the blocks. We're in battle, and we're in warfare. Um, and as we're battling every day, and as the battle gets hotter and hotter and more and more difficult, one of the essential pieces is that we put up the shield of faith. Why do you need the shield of faith? Well, because it says right there in 16 so that you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What are the flaming arrows? What are the fiery darts that Satan fires at us? Uh, the flaming arrows are different temptations. Do you find yourself tempted at all? Sure you do. He will shoot fiery arrows, and they can take, uh, these arrows can take uh, hundreds of, of different ways. These temptations can come in manifold different ways. There are Temptations of fear. Fear. So much of the Christian life is fighting off fear. Is it not? Yes, it is. There are uh, flaming arrows of worry. There are flaming arrows of anxiety. Here's another. There are flaming arrows of regret. Oh, I wish I had to come to Christ earlier than I did. I wish I had have raised my kids differently. I wish I had known this back then. Yeah, but you didn't. And if you're not careful, the enemy will just eat you alive with regret for what you didn't do, for what you didn't know. He will just pound you like a drum. Amazing how the enemy works, isn't it? If he can't get you with regret from your past, if, if he, once you come to grips with God is sovereign over my past, he came, he's come into my life, he saved me, he's redeemed me. And there's a great verse in Joel that says, the years, if, if you have regrets over lost years, there's a great verse in Joel, the years which the locusts have eaten, God says, I will restore. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that when, when the locusts would come in, and if you ever read uh, um, Laura uh, uh, Wilder Ingalls, who did the uh, 
Little House on the Prairie. Mary read through those books last year, read through the whole set again. And uh, she would read me excerpts. And one of the things that happened, and a true story in America, one of the things that happened to Charles Ingalls was that one year he planted the crop. I think they moved to Ohio and he planted the crop. And it was just about, they were finally going to get out of debt. It was just coming to fruition. Whew. Here come the locusts. They were wiped out. Everybody was wiped out. No crop. They stayed with it. Next year, next year will be better. Go through the whole process again. Put the seed in, pray for rain. And it's just about harvest time. And early one morning, off in the distance, are those thunderclouds? Are those, no, those are locusts. Here they come again. Hey, hey, there's nothing green left. Wiped them out again. I can't remember how many successive years. Just about bankrupted them and everybody around them. You know what God says? The years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. And Martin Lloyd-Jones one time said, he said, the great thing about God, if you've got years of regret and years of loss, know this about God. God can give you, God can give you because he's so great. God can give you 10 years harvest in one year. Whatever it was you lost, he can restore. So see, you can't get hung up on regret. Just be thankful God did a work in your life. Well, I wish he had done it earlier. Yeah, but he didn't. But you see, he's done a work, and he who, began a, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Okay. If he can't get you with regret, the enemy will come, and he'll try to get you with fear of the future. If he can't get you with, fear, with regret over the past, he'll try to get you with fear of the future. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen out here? That's a flaming arrow. The stock market went up today. I'm encouraged. I don't know about you, but I think we're out of this whole thing, don't you? I mean, we're on our way, guys. Did it go up how much? 55 points? Oh, oh 108. Oh, this is great. We're good. Hey, it's good. Everything's fine. Oh, we went down 200 day before yesterday? Oh, you're just negative, man. We're on our way out. This is insane. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The NASDAQ is sinking sand. The New York Stock Exchange which the German zone is sinking sand. It's all sinking sand. Once again, just here to encourage you tonight. <laughs> but we're soldiers, guys, and we're on the front lines. So what's required when you're in battle and it's hot and heavier and it's getting more and more intense and more and more flaming arrows are coming your way, how in the world do you keep going? There's only one way you keep going, by putting up the shield of faith. That's it. You put up that shield, and the shield will stop those flaming arrows, and the shield will quench them, 
and the, and the shield will extinguish the heat. But if we ever take down that shield of faith, then we're in trouble. John Fox, who wrote uh, the great work, Fox's Book of Martyrs, said this, By faith we stand, by faith we fight, by faith we overcome. Faith is critical to the Christian life. 1 John 5.4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You know, in Christianity, I think there's a lot of confusion about, about faith. If, if you're in a Bible teaching church, if you've been raised in Bible teaching churches, you hear about faith, but I think sometimes people have misconceptions what is faith? What is it all about? It is critical that we understand it because as I am in battle and these flaming arrows come, whether it's about, uh, it, it could be an arrow of lust. I, I will never conquer this lust. Well, you better put up the shield of faith because Christ is in your life and you are growing and you are maturing in Christ. I'll never overcome this sin. Well, If you think you won't, you won't. Uh, turn with me to Galatians 5. Just go one book to the left. Look at verse 7 of Galatians 5. He's talking about walking by the Spirit. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hinders us? The enemy does. He'll hinder you by discouraging you. He will uh, hinder you by tempting you. He will hinder you by getting you off course. Verse 16, I say walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For those who are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, oh my gosh, oh, well, wait a minute, see, that's me in the Christian life. No, 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 you're not practicing those anymore. Do so you see the word practice? He said, well, I'm not growing in Christ. Well, you guys, did you see the word practice? A lot of times we condemn ourselves because we still struggle with some sins. But just because you're struggling with sin doesn't mean that you're practicing. When somebody is practicing sin, they do it over and over and over and over again intentionally to get better at it. You used to practice sin. Now you are trying to lay aside sin. And there's a big difference. And see, the fact is you are maturing. You are growing. God is going to give you favor in this area of temptation. Oh, I'll never, I'll never get out, out of this pornography thing. Actually, you will. He can deliver you. 
He can deliver you. There are guys in here who have been delivered from such things. And they have ministry to other guys. But you have to get blatantly honest. And you have to call it what it is. And with sin like pornography, which is a private sin, you have to confess your sin one to another. You have to go to another brother. I'm asked this all the time. How do you deal with pornography? You, you have to expose it. You've got to bring it into the light. Well, I want to keep that hidden. I don't want anybody to know it's in my life. Well, that's one of the tactics of the enemy. He wants you to think you have to keep it hidden. But the moment that you confess it to a brother who can be trusted, you outflank him, you bring it into the light, he's got nothing on you, the brother prays for you, he won't condemn you, the two are stronger than one, now together you're going to walk through this, you begin to grow and mature in Christ, you're accountable to another brother. You do the software thing so that he gets a report. What is that, Covenant Eyes? He gets a report of every website you've been on, vice versa. You check in with each other. That's how you get out of it. I'll never get out of it. You can, by the power of Christ. But you have to get serious. But see, what the enemy wants to do is get you despairing, put down the shield of faith. I'm locked into this. No, you're not. What is faith? What is faith? There are... There are so many, I think, misunderstand. I, I remember years ago, talking, how, how do I say this briefly? Um, I remember talking with a guy over a period of several years who had a desire to be in full-time ministry, and he was in full-time ministry. Uh, he loved being in ministry, but the problem was he was not providing for his family. First uh, Timothy 5 says, if a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. And this guy was barely eking by, four or five kids, doing a ministry, and Mary and I were supporting the ministry, the work that the guy did, and, but I would talk with him from time to time because I knew that his family was in dire straits. Um, and I began to get the sense with this guy that he just loved the idea of being in ministry. And I had several conversations with him. And not confrontational, just talking. And I'd, so how are things going? Well, they're not going real well. And I found out things like the refrigerator would go out, and he would go, they would go three, four months without a refrigerator with four or five kids. You know, First Timothy 5 says, if a man doesn't provide for his own. And I said, you know, have you ever thought about... Um, the guy, he, he, he was pretty good with his hands, he was... He was good around the house. I said, have you ever thought about going over to Home Depot and just getting a job and supplementing your ministry? He goes, oh, I couldn't do that. And I said, why is that? He goes, well, I'm in full-time ministry. I said, can I ask you something? I said, so this work you're doing, he was telling me about the work he was doing. and uh, It was kind of ethereal. It was kind of hard to nail down what he was doing. And I said, so what do you do during the week? Do you teach any Bible studies? Well, you know, I've, I've got to meet with a couple of guys once a week. How long does that take? Oh, we usually meet for about 30 minutes. Okay, well, good. What else? What, and who else? You, well, that's it right now. I've got some other potential guys. I said, so it seems to me you've got quite a bit of time on your hands. Well, you know, I'm, I'm planning this and doing and I said, hey, and this was, I, this was, I, I just didn't come in with a bulldozer. This is over a period of years. And we had to gradually go through this, but 
At one point, I said, hey, listen, I want to be honest with you. It's not my job to provide for your family. It's your job. And here's the other thing. What you're telling me you're doing in full-time ministry, I know guys that have full-time jobs that are doing more than you're doing. And here's what we ought to do. I, I think you ought to think about maybe getting a part-time job and supplementing your income. And then let's, let's, so, you know, I'll see you in, what, eight, nine, ten months, and let's see where we are. So I saw him eight, nine, ten months down the road, and I said, well, you know, we, we're talking. Nothing had changed. I said, you know, we're not going to be able to support your work anymore. He said, well, you think you'd give me another year, year and a half to, uh... I said, no, I don't think so. That didn't go over real well. And you know what he kept telling me? Well, he said, well, I'm walking by faith. I said, you know, I don't think you are. I don't think you are. Listen, if Paul made tents while he ministered, why can't you go get a job at Home Depot? You see? Nothing wrong with that. I, I meet guys all over the country. I, I was in South Georgia this past weekend, and I met several guys in farming communities, and they come up to me, shake my hand, say, what do you do? I'm a bivocational, bivocational pastor. So good for you, man. They pastor a little church, and they got a hardware store. They pastor a church, and they're farming. They pastor, I said, man, that's biblical. That's just flat-out biblical. Good for you. They're working their tails off. See, faith, and here's the reason I'm going into all this, is that sometimes people have a view of faith. Well, well I just don't do anything, and I just, I just trust God. Colossians says, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as unto men, not as unto Christ. Uh, let me back up. <laughs> whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as... <laughs> Let's look it up. <laughs> I thought I knew this verse. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's Colossians 3.23. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Men are to work. You know what also is in the Bible? If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I recently became aware of a young guy. He's 21, 22 years old. Got a girl pregnant, and uh, he's already on welfare. I don't know how he pulled that off. But see, that's what his dad has done. Now, you know what that young man needs? Oh, what does he do all day? He sleeps in, and he gets up and he plays video games. Somebody needs to come into that young man's life and say, hey, young man, get your butt out of bed. Go find a job. Well, there's a bad economy. There's no work. Well, then you know what? I'm going to pay you minimum wage to go dig a ditch. Dig a ditch? Dig a ditch to where? I don't care. Just get out there and dig. <laughs> and I'll pay you. What are we digging the ditch for? We're going to take your video games and we're going to bury them in there. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. And you're going to learn to work and be a man and bust your tail 10 hours a day. It'll be good for you. You'll have some dignity and some self-worth. You see? <laughs> well, I don't think I want to do that. Well, then guess what? You're not going to eat. Well, that might hurt me. Yes, it will hurt you. 
Well, can I come up to your house and eat? No, you can't. You can smell the cooking, but you can't eat because you haven't worked. Well, that's hard on my self-esteem. Good. You want self-esteem? Go do a real job for real wages and work your tail off. You won't struggle with self-esteem because there's dignity in hard work. You see? If you're an able-bodied man, get out there and work now. That's in the Bible, guys, isn't it? Well, I'm just living by faith. Well, I'll give you some faith. Okay, let's, let's just, we'll just edit it right there. What is faith? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is God's Hall of Fame. The Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is in Canton. The Basketball Hall of Fame is in Springfield, Mass. God's Hall of Fame is in Hebrews 11. So you got the shield, okay? The shield, we got the shield, we got, we got that down, okay? Then we got the flaming arrows come. You, you can picture that in your mind. You've seen it in the movies. But what kind of shield is it? It's the shield of faith. And let me say, let me say something about faith here. The faith that is being referred to in Ephesians 6 is, is not saving faith. It's not the faith that you exercise when you ask Christ to come into your life. It's not the Ephesians 2.8 faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's not saving faith. It is the faith that comes after saving faith. It is practical faith. It is daily faith. It is living faith, because you're supposed to put it on as you're in battle. So every day you're in battle, every day you put on this faith. You're already saved. But this is faith that you exercise every day of your life. Generally speaking, it is a daily confidence in God. It is a daily confidence in God and in His Word and His provision. So Hebrews chapter 11 is God's Hall of Fame, and there, is, there are people listed in God's Hall of Fame. God's Hall of Fame is God's Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. So let's define faith and let's get it clear in our minds what it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. All right, let's break this down. So what is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. All right, now let's, let's get real practical here. What are some of the things you are hoping for as you walk through life? Let's talk right now about where we are financially and economically. We're not in the greatest climate in the world. Um... Things aren't looking real good. So how do you function every day? How do you get up and keep going? How do you get up and have any hope? How do you get, get up and, and function? When so many things are going wrong, it, it seems like every time you turn on the news or you look at this report or this report, you go, my gosh. I mean, do you remember, was it the summer before? It was four bucks a gallon, gas? And now it's hitting five. Well, man, when it was four bucks a gallon, you were wondering, you remember when that, that happened? You're thinking to yourself, oh, i got to go to Plano. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to go to Plano. Because there's a tipping point for everybody. But isn't it interesting how we, get, uh, we, we adjust to certain things? Well, see, we that was a big deal, four bucks a gallon. Oh, my gosh, people aren't driving, they're not taking vacation. Now it's at five in some places. And it's not summer yet. Well, what if it hits six? 
Okay. Faith, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So what are you hoping for? I think one of the things that you are hoping for is that as you are a responsible man and get up and go to work, that God is going to provide for your needs so that you can take care of your responsibilities, take care of your family, provide for your family, and what you really need, what you're hoping for, if you stop and think about it, is you're hoping that God is going to do that for you every day for the rest of your life until you take your dying breath. Now, I have a question for you. How much do you think it's going to take for you to make it for the rest of your life until you take your dying breath? You ever thought about this? Sometimes we do it when we do financial planning, retirement planning. You get the calculator, you know, okay, and how much you got? And I get this, okay. And how many more years do you have your, and so, okay, you do, oh my, okay, okay, well, let's see. I need to make, I need to put away every week $19,000. <laughs> every week. Well, I'm in trouble. And so are you. But see, I mean, this is, this is something we're thinking about. How much are you going to need? Not, not to make it today or tomorrow. How much are you going to need financially to take care this is what you're hoping for, is that financially you can make it until the end of your life. Are you not hoping for that? Yes, you are. Okay. Go with me to Isaiah 46. <clears throat> Isaiah 46, 3. We've been here before. It's a good place to land, and you go back to it frequently. Isaiah 46, 3. By the way, what is faith? Faith is is believing, as we'll see in a minute, it's believing in God and it's believing that he will fulfill his word. That's all I'll say on that for right now. Isaiah 46.3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. So what does that mean? Wherever you are in life, God's been carrying you your whole life. There have been times in your life when you have been aware that God is carrying you because you didn't have the strength or the health or whatever it was to make it through, and God carried you. You have been born by me from birth, that's a fact, and have been carried from the womb. Now watch this. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Have I taken care of you up until now? Yes. All right. To your old age, I will be the same. To your grain years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you, I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Now that's either true or it isn't. Does it say how he will do it? No. It just says he will do it. You see, now go back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? Is faith saying, well, I don't feel like going to work, I'm going to live by faith? No, you get your tail out of bed, you go to work, and you do what you can do. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the assurance. Why? Well, because I made all these shrewd investments, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. So let's... But see, sometimes you make investments, and then things happen out of your control, and the investments get down to half or nothing. What do you do then? See, the foolish man built his house on the sand, but the wise man built his house on the what? On the rock. So if you build your life and your foundation on the promises of God, then what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are you hoping for? That God 
will supply me everything I need until my... And, well, I have a special needs child. What did we just find out? That's another three million. How much do you need to make it? be interesting to know. God knows to the penny how much you'll need for the rest of your life. Well, what about when I die and my wife survives? Well, how much is she going to need? Well, it'd be interesting to add up, wouldn't it? Start adding that up and you go, oh my God, I got a special needs child. That's another three million. Can you imagine trying to do all this without Christ? I can't. So what is faith? You get up, you work, you do what you can do, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And where's your hope? It's in him. And it's in Isaiah 46.3. And say, so you trust in Isaiah 46.3. And you count on Isaiah 46.3, and you depend on Isaiah 46.3. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Look at the second part of faith in uh, uh, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Watch this. It's the conviction or it's the evidence of things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. So let's say you figure out how much you need for the rest of your life until you die, how much you need to take care of your wife if she lives longer than you do, how much to, you know, your estate. Okay, let's figure you, you figure out how much you need. And let's say you come up with it. Okay? And let's say you put it in your Merrill Lynch or your Schwab account, and you got it in, and let's just say it's, uh, let's just say it's, uh, you know, it's five million bucks. Let's just say that. And you got it in there, okay? Now let's read this verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So does God say to us, okay, now look it. Here's how much you're going to need for the rest of your life from this point on. Here's the figure, and here's what I'm doing. I'm going to go ahead tonight and transfer it into your Schwab account. And you get, in the, you get up in the morning, and you go online, and that's going to be in your Schwab account. And you get up online, and you're going, man, there it is. it's five million bucks. Is that how God does it? That's not how he does it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I need X amount, and God said he'll provide. Okay, watch this. It's the evidence of things. You go to your Shrub account, and they're $17. <laughs> but you're going to need $5 million for the rest of your life. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Well, you don't have $5 million in there. Well, you don't need $5 million tomorrow, do you? How much will you need tomorrow? Whatever you need tomorrow is going to be there tomorrow. See, it's called manna. Manna. In the Old Testament, 40 years, God fed them with manna. Just enough for the day. Give us this day our daily manna. The Old Testament principle. Oh, and by the way, if they took too much manna, you know what would happen? It would spoil. If they didn't take enough manna, they got, oh, man, I, I didn't get enough at the store. You know what we got to do? He would enlarge it. Oh, on the Sabbath day, God said, don't collect manna. We won't be manna. So the day before the Sabbath, what do you do? You take an extra amount, you take double, and it won't spoil. That's faith. And for 40 years, God came through and never missed. Um, go to uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6. So I guess I'm saying this because any of you guys ever worry about your economic future? Any of you guys ever wonder about your retirement? You ever wonder about, well, what's going to happen if I get sick? 
What's going to happen if I can't work? What's going to happen if I can't think? What's going to happen if I get some terminal disease? What's going to happen if I don't have... What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. God's going to come through for you. But you know what happens? You're walking through life. You're working hard. You're trying to do what you can do, and you keep getting hammered. You keep getting bad news, and this happens, and this happens, and it's this flaming arrow, flaming arrow. And if you don't put up the shield of faith, it's curtains. Sometimes we take down the shield. I was sharing with you last week that the week before on a Thursday, I pretty much had dropped the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. Pretty much got hammered and beat up all day long. See, we don't always get this right. We're growing in grace, but see, guys, we're learning the lessons, but we haven't learned them all. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. If you're still in first grade when it comes to faith and you've been a Christian 40 years, you're seriously behind. What you want to be doing is you want to be seeing some growth. Have you learned all the lessons? Have you got a PhD in faith? Probably not. But you want to be, you want to be look back and say, well, I'm not in first grade. You know, I'm up to fifth grade now. Good. You're learning. You're learning. Have you got more lessons? Yeah, but you're learning. Look where you were. Do you get it right every day? Do you pass every test? No. Now look at uh, 6 of Hebrews 11. Uh, faith is critical in the Christian life. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. People think all kinds of things about God that certain things please God. Well, you know, I, I give X amount, or I do this, or I, you know, or I don't, don't swear, or I do this, you know, all this stuff. The thing that pleases, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For, watch this. Now, and so, once again, let's break faith down. What is faith? It's a two-part definition here. What is faith? He who comes to God must believe that he is. That's it. He who comes to God must believe that he is. We live in a culture that says he isn't. We live in a culture that says he doesn't exist. We live, and, and, okay, that's our culture. See, that's why they say, trust in government. Yeah, you, you worry about your welfare, worry about this, worry about this, trust in government. No, we trust in God. There's a spirit of antichrist in the world. We trust in Christ, and Christ alone I take my stand. He is my provider. He's Jehovah Jireh. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. I have a theory, and my theory is this. I've never seen it, I've, I've never seen it, I've never seen it proven wrong. Every adult man that I know who is walking with Christ has an area in his life where something is seriously missing. And he can't get his arms around it. And if God doesn't come through for him, he is finished. He is totally dependent on the mercy of God. And in that area of life, which he can't control, he is walking by sheer, unadulterated faith that God is. And who is our God? Our God is the self-existent God. He has always been. See, this is where you got to think of, who is my God? He is the sovereign God. He is the self-existent God. He spoke the worlds into existence. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He has unlimited power. He has wisdom. He has might. He... So John 9, the guy blind from birth, what did Jesus do? He just put the spittle on the eye, boom, he healed him. Withered hand, boom. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. 
Your circumstances? Anything too hard for them? Well, why doesn't he come through? Ah, that's another reason. There's something he's doing. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, What's the first thing of faith? You believe that he is. Oh, watch this. And then here's the second part. And then he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, it's interesting. When you get into economic hard times, you get into an economic recession, and you get into all this stuff, um, suddenly we're seeking him. Isn't that interesting how that works? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Um, And sometimes the Lord takes away in order to motivate us to seek him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, You know, something I find interesting on this uh, whole thing of the shield of faith is that in the Christian life, we're not battling by ourselves. This Ephesians 6 was written to the church. The church is composed of men and women. Uh, we're, 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 We're not the Lone Ranger. We're not by ourselves. We are in a body. And what's interesting to me is that as you are putting up the shield of faith, you're not walking by yourself. You're, working, you're, you're, you're walking in close order rank with other men who are following the Lord. And sometimes when you put your shield down, you know what's going to happen? Someone else is going to come along, and they're going to put their shield up and encourage you. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I, got, uh, I want to give you some stuff here for some old dead guys. Some old dead Puritan pastors who live today because they preach the Word of God and they live the Word of God. So, have you ever heard of Samuel Ward? Probably not. But he wrote some stuff on faith, and I quote from his little booklet called Faith, and he has the second part of his booklet says, The folly of neglecting faith. Allow me to read this. Live by faith, again I say. Always live by it. Always rejoice through faith in the Lord. It is neglecting this exercise that allows your own low moods and Satan to interrupt your happiness and spiritual cheerfulness and to hold you in the dumps and in gloominess. He wrote this in the 1600s. Why? Because they were dealing with stuff. They didn't know, this guy didn't know when he was going to be taken by a group of soldiers and taken over there to the magistrate and he'd be burned at the stake. That's what he was dealing with. What if you have a natural inclination to melancholy and depression? Can faith correct your nature? Does it not have the power to clear the mind of all cares, fears, and griefs? Yes, it does. Can it not exhilarate the whole man? But what good is this faith if it is not used? It is like a soldier with a sword at his side, not drawing his weapon when he is attacked. Faith has got to be utilized. Why are you in despair, Psalm 42, O my soul? And why have you become cast down within me? Well, there are probably reasons you've been cast down. And then he says this, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. The guy's in despair. The guy's depressed. There's been some loss in his life. And then what does he say to himself? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. Why? Because he's promised to take care of me. He's promised to deliver me. Has he delivered you in the past? Why wouldn't he take care of you in the future? (laughs) 
Do not most men have something they use to counteract their discouragements? The answer is yes. He writes in the 1600s, some men seek refreshment in company of friends or in wine or tobacco. Today it's cocaine or alcohol or whatever you use. Everybody's got their crutch. Dr. Pepper. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> he said they would not go far without a supply of these, but would not the least taste of faith be far better? See, and my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Um, so why doesn't he do it right now? Why doesn't he do it right now? You know, uh, Jim Williams sent me a text this week that helped me. Uh, the week before, my shield was kind of down. My breastplate was kind of off. And Jim sent me a text. And he sent me uh, a quote from... Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, another pastor in the 1600s who went through some tough stuff. And last year I, I mentioned this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I'm going to read this to you. You got to hone in. Okay, you okay? You need to focus? You need to drink a Dr. Pepper? Okay. The phrase he has here is make a good interpretation of God's ways towards you. If any good interpretation can be made of God's ways towards you, make it. You think it much if you have a friend who always makes bad interpretation of your ways towards him. You would take that badly. If you should converse with people with whom you cannot speak a word, but they are ready to make a bad interpretation of it and to take it in an ill sense, you would think their company very tedious to you. It is very tedious to the Spirit of God when we make such bad interpretations of His ways towards us. When God deals with us otherwise than we would have Him to do, if, if one sense worse than another can be put upon it, we will be sure to do it. Thus, when an affliction befalls you, Many good senses may be made of God's works towards you. Let me say that again. When an affliction befalls you, many good senses may be made of God's works towards you. You say, really? Really, listen to this. You should think thus, if an affliction comes upon you. It may be God intends here only to try me by this. Or it may be that God saw my heart was too much set on the creature. And so he intends to show me what is in my heart. Uh, it may be that God saw that if my wealth, watch this, watch this, God saw that if my wealth did continue, I should fall into sin. That the better my position were, the worse my soul would be. For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own it may be God intended only to exercise some grace. It may be God intends to prepare me for some great work which he has for me. Thus you should reason. But we, on the contrary, make bad interpretations of God's dealings with us and say, God does not mean this. Surely the Lord means by this to manifest his wrath and displeasure against me. And this is but a furtherance of further evils that he intends towards me. That's the work of the devil right there. Just as they did in the wilderness... They said, God hath brought us here to slay us. This is the worst interpretation you can possibly make of God's ways. 
Can you imagine, Jim, can you imagine he texted all this to me? <laughs> Not all of it, but he gave, me the, he gave me the gems and he gave me the page. And I, read it, and I read it yesterday morning and I read it this morning. And I'm reading it to you. I, I, I'd like to read you two more pages, but I can't. Uh, let me just read this. He says, I beseech you to consider that God does not deal by you as you deal with him. <laughs> Is that not wonderful? When we look into our hearts, we can scarce see any good at all there, and yet God is pleased to make such as an interpretation as to say, it's perfect. Why? We're in Christ. When we look into our own hearts, we can see nothing but uncleanness. God calls you his saints, means holy one. He calls the meanest Christian who has the least grace under the greatest corruption his saint. And so I might name in some other particulars how God makes the best interpretation of things. If there is an abundance of evil and a little good, God passes by the evil and takes notice of the good. Take heed of judging God to be a hard master. Make good interpretations of his ways. And that is a special means to help you to contentment in your course. And then on the heels of that, you got time for one more? Actually, you don't because I got four zeros staring at me. But you know what? That's never stopped me before. <laughs> I'm like Congress, I just keep spending. <laughs> oh, I'm spending your time. Now, listen to this. Here's Thomas Watson, All Things for Good. He's another one of these guys that lived in the 1600s. You know what you write over the 1600s? Persecution. Persecution. Why, why do we read these guys that lived in the 1600s? Why do we read these Puritans? By the world, the world, the world mocks Puritans, don't they? You know why they call them Puritans? They wanted the church to be pure. Well, there's a novel idea. Yeah. All right, listen to this. I'm going to give you a shot from Thomas Watson. Catch this. All right. God enriches by impoverishing. I didn't get one amen on that. <laughs> Thomas Watson would not have a TV program on TBN. Thomas Watson would not be on the Sherathon. Give us a word from the Lord, Thomas. Give us a word from the Lord for our viewers. God enriches by impoverishing. Get that sucker out of here. <laughs> Shut him up. Listen to this. God increases by impoverishing. God works strangely. He brings order out of confusion and harmony out of discord. He frequently makes use of unjust men to do that which is just. Either the wicked shall not do the hurt that they intend, or they shall do the good which they do not intend. This, is, this, this guy, 
This is Bible right here. What not, not, I'm going to end with this, and I could just go and go, but I'm going to end with this. God often helps when there is least hope and saves his people in that way which they think will destroy. Have you ever seen him do that? Yes, you have. <laughs> so if he's done it in the past, why would he stop now? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what do we do? We just keep showing up. We keep going to work. We keep, we keep taking the shots. We keep trusting. And we keep holding up the shield of faith. That's Christian life. Oh, and guess what? We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Oh, and guess what? You're going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back. He may come back tonight. But you may die before he comes back. But Jesus said, he, Jesus said this, He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. We're good. We're fine. We're going to make it. I'm encouraged. Aren't you? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. That's it. I just say thank you. We, 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 are, we, we are the most blessed of men on the earth because Jesus has come into our lives. He opened our blind eyes. We couldn't see the truth of the gospel. These people around us, they can't see the truth of the gospel. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel, but you opened our eyes. Just like that man in John 9, you touched him. Suddenly he could see it. We can see it. Help us to keep seeing. Help us to keep seeing that you're there. You've not forgotten us. You're there. Sometimes, Lord, we're Christians, but we live like atheists. We act like you're not there. You are there. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. You know the pressure we're under. You know the circumstances. You see it. You've orchestrated it. You're in charge of it. You're sovereign over it. You're just simply doing something we don't understand. And what do I do? What do these guys do? We tend to interpret it in the worst possible way, and we forget that you're up to something for our good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Help us to walk in confidence in you. So help us to, to get back to the house tonight. Help us to sleep. Help us to rest. Not that thrashing around the bed stuff. Help us to rest. Because you give to your beloved, even in their sleep. Oh, when we get up, the new mercy will be there waiting for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.